Hi everybody and welcome to my podcast on cracking the code into the pharmaceutical industry. My name is Lizzie and I have recently graduated with a Masters of Neuroscience. If like me you're looking to step out of academia and into the pharmaceutical industry, then this podcast is for you. I'll be speaking with experts in roles within the industry, science graduates who have made it as well as specialist recruiters for their top tips. Does this sound interesting? Then just hit play and let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by Riaz Abaz. Hi, Riaz. How are you going? Hi, Lizzie. I'm good. That's good. So just to give a bit of an introduction to Riaz, you started out as a research scientist. Then you progressed into the medical affairs role, specializing in HIV. Um, You've worked for some big companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Viv Healthcare, and now Amgen. And your current role with Amgen is Senior Manager, Global Medical Learning and Performance. Now, I will be honest, I have no idea what that role actually is. So I will definitely be asking you some questions later on about that and what it is you actually do. So to start, could you please, let's go, I want to go right back to the beginning. Could you tell me what you studied at university? Yeah, thanks for having me. My passion has always been science, and uh, I studied biological sciences in my first degree or bachelor's degree, as some people may refer to. And then I went on to do a master's in virology from uh, University of London. Okay. Okay. And what was your first role in the pharmaceutical industry? My first proper role in the industry, I would say, would be the M- would be an MSL medical science liaison back in 2004. And did you have any sort of plan on entering in the pharmaceutical industry or did it sort of just spring upon you and an opportunity was there and you went for it? No, I had no plans of joining the industry. I guess it depends how long, how far back do I go. But this question made me think, if I take myself back when I was at uni, definitely not. My passion, my interest, what I wanted to do was to be a researcher Uh, and learn, understand as much as I can about HIV and be at the forefront of it. Um, So I will, and I was very happy. I was very excited and felt really, really blessed to be working at the cutting edge of HIV research when I first started in 1999. Okay, great. Now, I'd like to go into a bit of detail about what a medical affairs role is, because I actually recently read, it was on LinkedIn, an article that said a lot of GPs don't actually know the difference between medical affairs liaison and uh, sales um, representative. So can you um, tell us what does a medical affairs person do? Well, medical affairs per se is a big department. So there are different roles within that medical affairs uh, function. If we look at um, the roles that are quite critical, uh, and you specifically mentioned here about MSL and a sales rep. So MSL is a key or one of the key roles within the medical affairs function. Now, you mentioned about this article. I haven't actually read that, but GPs um, or general practitioners per se, they are, um, they may not have that understanding because I believe that not a lot of disease area, therapy areas um, have an active MSL workforce. In terms of different, so they could be, lines could be blurred. They may not really understand that. 
The question is not do we need MSLs or not at, at a GP level. That's a completely different question, and we can discuss it later on. But your question about what's the main difference between a GP, uh, sorry, a sales rep and an MSL is the fundamental difference is, as the title itself suggests, uh, a sales rep is there to represent the company, the organization that they work for, and their ultimate goal is to complete, to promote a product or service and close on a sale. So they sell a product or service. An MSL, again, by the title of the role, medical science liaison, by definition means a liaison between the organization and its products yep. or services. So the biggest difference really is that a sales role is promotional. They do sell a product or service. An MSL is a completely non-promotional role. Okay. And this role seems to be really competitive, a very sought-after role. Do you, Can you tell us why maybe that is, why so many graduates, you know, whether they have a PhD or a master's, they want this role and why it's so competitive to get into? I think to get into, before we answer that question about competitiveness, we need to understand a bit as to why people want to get into this sort of a role. We all know uh, one of the biggest factors of demanding competition is supply and demand. If there is a high need and and that comes down to the importance of this role. So this role is extremely important, it's critical. I would argue that an effective MSL is pretty much the backbone of the medical affairs function. Okay. And an MSL role in, helps us in the industry in medical affairs, where we are pretty much ahead of our commercial colleagues in developing. So we are part of the R&D, research and development. Medical affairs is a part of that. And within that function, MSL is a, is a person or the role that actually is a conduit between what's happening in the clinical practice and what are unmet needs, what do we need to do, what kind of products, services are required. Now, so the, a good effective MSL workforce would enable us or be a key ingredient behind the strategy behind uh, current or emerging therapies. So they provide that landscape overview, which obviously shifts and changes with time. Uh, so we can actually pivot and actually adapt our strategy. So MSL are really, really critical. And when I started, it was a very new role. I always say the world was very different. But now this very well established is uh, one of the strategic pillars of any medical affairs or any pharma company, really, that, that it's very clear, it's become very evident that how critical that role is in terms of developing a strategy, executing that strategy and uh, implementing what we want to achieve. So those are the factors that have made it very clear how impactful, how important this role is. And as a result, it becomes highly sought after which in itself creates competition, which is great for mm. for us in the industry. We want the best of the best, creme de creme. Yeah. Now, you specialize in HIV. We've spoken about this previously in, a, in another conversation, and I could tell how passionate um, you were about this topic. Being so passionate about HIV, did this give you some sort of direction as to where you wanted to go next in your career? Oh, absolutely, 100%. So if you, when you asked me, did I see myself in industry? And I said, no, the reason was again, because as I said, I really wanted to work and understand about, about HIV pathogenesis, interaction between 
this virus and our own immune system. So there are a lot of reasons. So yes, absolutely, definitely helped me. I would in fact say is one of the key factors where um, not being an MD, not being a medic by a training, I've been able to do what I've been able to achieve in my career. It's because of that interest, that passion. So absolutely to help me um, break into, a, into an MSL role. And then it also helped me. So I always believe that one of the best coaches that tell you, and I'm not promoting this movie, but if you haven't watched it, it's called The Swimmers. The Swimmers. Okay. No, I haven't I haven't watched it's, that movie. Um, it's amazing. It's about these two Syrian refugees who um, basically went to the Olympics. And I don't want to spoil it anymore, but it's got the coach okay. in that movie from the get-go, who was the father of one of the swimmers, actually used to say to her, find your lane and complete your swim. And that's what... I, I would like to say that if you have an area where you have a strong interest, really passionate to learn about it, you've got to find that lane and, and, and can complete your race. So you'd say it's really important for graduates to sit down and have a good think about where their passion lies, what interests them, and try and build their career Absolutely. around that. I think they should be doing so already because... I'm a strong believer in that you've got to define the purpose first and then you act on it. So we should ask ourselves, yeah. um, what I love doing, why is it so fulfilling? My father always said to me that the difference between somebody doing a good enough job versus somebody who's really doing an excellent role is exactly that, their passion and their interest. 100%. Now, coming back to your current role at um, Amgen, Global Learning and Performance Lead for Amgen, JPAC. What does that mean? What What do you do? What is your What is your role? I should clarify, JPAC is, we have our own certain acronym and definition. The JPAC in Amgen Dictionary stands for Japan, Asia Pacific, so the Asia Pacific region. The role really is around building capabilities within our medical workforce in the Asia Pacific region by providing colleagues with the right learnings that would enhance their performance today, but also creating a workforce for tomorrow. So it's about really thinking, taking a step back, thinking, where are we going? Where are we heading? What would our people need to be successful in those roles? So you're, you've started out, you know, specializing in a HIV, a particular illness, and now you've You've sort of taken off your scientist hat and you're more leaning towards learning and personal development. Is that right? Is that correct? I would say I haven't taken my scientific hat off at all. Okay. All I really do is that I've looked at, okay, what we did in 15 years that's tend to work really, really well in the UK, really well in Australia, pretty well in Asia Pacific. And then how can we replicate? How can we... How can I be the catalyst for that change, that enhancement in a completely therapy area agnostic way? And the, the reason being, Lizzie, is that you have, of course, you've got to have the very strong scientific foundation, but it's a transferable skills with time you realize actually that they're far more important. It's a bit like saying if you can cook a basic pasta recipe, you actually can open a huge repertoire of different dishes, right? And that's what I learned in the lab as well, that molecular virology, which is which was my main area of work that I used to do, well, 
if you know how to run a PCR, sky is the limit. You can sequence any genetic uh, material, any part of the genome, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, or a human tumor cell. So all I've really done is, how can we, having worked in different roles in medical affairs, from MSL to medical advisor to medical lead, local, country, region level, what have I learned and how can I basically bring that, those learnings, but also more importantly, be very strategic about where, what are the key ingredients we're going to need to excel in the future? And then understanding that, learning about it, and then providing those learning. I always say to people who come into the industry that my role really is to help you get in six months where I went in six years. And this role, was it yourself that created it or was it the company that realized there was a gap and they needed this because I mean I'm obviously not an expert in the industry but I've never actually seen this title before it's not I don't think it's a common a common title so how was it created I did not create it uh, so I just to clarify I did not create it. I was just asked would I be interested in that and the, and the reason is so in some companies some organization more people may be familiar with or listeners may be in, of your podcast be familiar with the role called learning and development. So it's similar to that, but there's a big difference here, which is about creating the capabilities of the future. Amgen, in my experience, compared to my previous um, organization that I work with, I just find that Amgen has a very strong uh, focus as well as um, area of capabilities versus capabilities are separate to technical skills, if I were to use that word. So for example, we have colleagues who have to specialize in an area of particular medicine so that they can actually, they really know, for example, cardiovascular area of disease. And then there's a huge impetus on how can we build capabilities, which are kind of, as I was saying before, therapy area agnostic, which apply universally. Like I always say Mm. that, um, how you do a task is actually functional agnostic. If you develop good communication skills that are going to help you as an MSL to external stakeholders, as a medical advisor to internal stakeholders. So Amgen, I found really unique thing about Amgen is that as opposed to other organizations where you have one person doing, if I could use that phrase, both roles. So being the technical expert as well as the expert on how to do that particular. So being an expert on the what as well as the how. I'm not saying that's not the right way, but I just think it's easier if you have dedicated experts who really develop expertise on the how piece and then can embed, pass on, and enhance those skills. So Amgen has two very distinct, uh, if you go up, very distinct layers. One is capabilities, which sit completely separate to our therapy area strategic framework. In most organizations, they are blended, they're mixed. And as a result, you have a huge impetus. You have people like myself. I'm not the only person who does that. And by the way, we had the same structure, same uh, model for both medical as well as commercial organization. So sales capabilities, marketing capabilities sit separate or parallel to product strategic framework. Okay. And do you think th- these sorts of roles will become more and more distinct within companies over time? Do you think there's more of a need for these type of t- 
type of roles within the pharmaceutical industry? I think it's definitely gaining more momentum, especially since the COVID pandemic, because unfortunately, human beings, we are, we are quite comfortable. We find a comfort zone and we it. just are happy to stick with it and keep, keep, keep growing. What COVID did is actually really accelerated the transformation that should have been happening and are we operating, I would say, in the last 10 years, if not before. So COVID really did that. And as a result, more, of a, more organizations, it became very clear that we have to change or adapt or modify how we operate. So actually, L&D in those organizations have taken a more of a central role. There were lots and lots of initial reports by consulting firms like McKinsey saying that actually L&D are taking are becoming a big focus point on the C-suite. So they're getting a seat on the table. I'm just very lucky that, and one of the reasons I've been, I wanted to do this role is because we already had that table. So I was already always part of the extended leadership team at the JPAC level because our VP always wanted to know these are the gaps and having me there is like, okay, what are you hearing? What do you think? And how can we fix and plug those, those gaps? So, Whilst many companies had now have got MSLs conducting interactions virtually, we were doing this when I first started in 2018. We had a virtual MSL pilot in Australia. And guess what? It was so timely. Again, coming back to where do we see the future? And it was pretty clear. Do we need one person to be flying all around a large country like Australia or can you maximize efficiency by providing where you need to be in person, you are there, but then you build enough relationship, you've done enough, so you can actually communicate that data, that scientific information with an opinion leader in a very quick manner on a virtual platform. So we tested that out. We had some very good data in 2019. And we all know what happened in 2020, January. So it really helped us yeah. accelerate. Now, those MSLs, I would say, who were actually doing learning as we were doing the pilot and already starting to offer virtual interactions did a lot better in the first six months of the pandemic as opposed to those who were completely new. Okay. Moving on to a, another, another topic, interviews. You've been on both sides of the table in recruitment. You've interviewed and you've been interviewed, people have interviewed you for your for your previous roles what were some things that really stood out to you in a candidate when you were interviewing them that made you think I want to employ this person she or he deserves this job I'm a little bit different Lizzie I think I've mentioned this to you before in terms of so I'm going to give you my views and, and, and my my opinions I think generally okay broadly speaking the only two ingredients you need for a job, right, to make that recipe, right, that initial source, if you use that pasta sauce analogy, right? And they are, in my opinion, competence and commitment. Okay. Competence is really your skills required to do the job and commitment really is your willingness, your confidence, your ability, your motivation to do that job. Now, most experienced managers, leaders, you ask them, if you had a choice to make between, of course, if you have both, competence and commitment in one person 
Perfect. Yeah. Great. You got the idle candidate. But we all know the world works in a mysterious way. It's sometimes quite challenging to find the right mix of both. If you ask most leaders, they would say, if you have a choice between building someone's competence and motivation or commitment, what would be the harder thing? And they all would say, commitment is a lot harder to build, is a lot harder to coach. Competence you can build by providing the education, information, etc. Now, I'm not saying that competence doesn't matter. Of course it matters. So you've got to have the foundation, the fundamentals of competence, that you have the ability to learn and do this job and excel at it. But I, so I always go more towards the commitment as opposed to competence. So in, in my hiring manager experience, I've always gone for people who may not necessarily have the, and sometimes actually, sorry, can I just highlight, sometimes we mix, confuse competence with experience which actually is not as simple as that. By somebody, by, just by somebody doing, having done a job doesn't mean that they're really, really competent yeah. or they are really good at executing it. I mean, you can ask my wife, she would tell you, I'm a terrible hedge trimmer. But if you ask me, have you cut hedges in your house? I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it for, for the last 10 years. Yeah, so my experience is there, but my competence level is pretty bad. And then, okay, come commitment, it depends what's at play, right? So, so commitment is, is a lot harder to build. So what put somebody, so having covered those things, what would put somebody, stand somebody apart is, is really asking that question. You've got to ask yourself three questions. Why? Why do I want to go for this job? What's, what's in it for not just me, but for the person interviewing me? And then how I'm going to communicate that by using least amount of words, and most amount of um, impact to communicate those things. If you get if you can get those three questions answered, then I think you are yeah. at least on a good footing to to deliver a good interview experience. And we all know good interview experience doesn't really mean that you will get the job, but at least it puts you aside. It happened to me so many times where I've gone for an interview, didn't get the role, got a call six months a year later saying. Oh, you remember me? We had this meeting. And to be honest with you, I don't remember them. But it's great they remember me. And so they're like, would you come? And this is exactly how I ended up in Anjan. So it's it's that. If we keep doing those three things, I would, that's one advice I'll give to anybody looking for a role is ask yourself these three questions. Really prepare yourself very well. Find somebody, a buddy that you can go through those questions and ask them for feedback. Am I communicating these three pieces really well. Is my why, is my passion coming out very clearly? And how I'm going to do that making sense to you so that I can be very well prepared for the interview. Now, to finish up, my final question to you is, what advice would you give to your younger self? (laughs) I would say just be open-minded. Open-minded? Okay. Uh, I was very, as much as I was fixated about, this is the area I want to to go in. But what I've learned is that actually the skills that we pick up, the uh, things that we learn from others are incredible. Like they definitely help you Mm. in your, not just your career, but you as a a person that is happy and satisfied with with, with what they they have. So yeah, being, just be open-minded. Um, build your network and talk to people who are not necessarily from your own area of 
field. That's the other thing I would, I think, would be really, really helpful because the world is transforming. We are moving into a very different space of how we operate, how we work. Mm. And by knowing what others who are really embedded in that space are doing, it can help us be better at what we do ourselves. Okay. Open-minded. Well, thank you, Riaz. I love this interview. I learned a lot from this. Um, Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes and feel free to leave me a review. See you next time.